Hey everyone, the following podcast is part two of Ivan's talk with Dr. John Kiley. Dr. Kiley is the senior lecturer in elite performance at the UCLAN Coaching and Performance Institute. What's up guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Welcome to the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Today I'm speaking again with Dr. John Kiley. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, Ivan. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, for those that maybe didn't listen to the part one of this podcast, can you give us for a brief introduction about yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm Irish. I... Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm some breed of sports scientist slash S&C slash coach slash ex-broken down athlete. Um, so, so yeah, my, my uh, competitive history and my original coaching history was, was in combat sports, originally as a kickboxer and then as a boxer. And mm-hmm. So uh, I was national champion in both of those and I competed internationally for a few years, but never set the world at war, the world alight quite quite average just to try hard but 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 obviously it was it was good experience and it set me up nicely for um for a role helping real athletes improve so uh i was a coach i guess from when i was in my early 20s maybe 22 23 mm-hmm. when i was around 26 um decided i should get myself a real job and I, I, I went to college or university I did sports science I came out and yeah same as everyone else long tortuous twisty turny journey I guess the highlights for me were um, coached a really good Paralympic athlete called Derek Malone uh, to a medal in Athens in 2004 in Paralympics he was world champion then in 2005 2005, I started a job as head of head head of strength and conditioning for UK Athletics in the run up to the Beijing Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over those few years, got to work with uh, the best GB athletes that, that were there at the time, uh, and we had a really good games in Beijing. Uh, continued working with track and field uh, after 2008. I did a lot of work with uh, Philip Sadowu, who was Olympic silver. 2008 world champion 2009 european champion 2010 mm-hmm. uh world silver 2011 uh jermaine mason who was olympic silver in in beijing so so quite a lot of experience in track and field predominantly with uh, and i guess for a number of years before that if i have a speciality it would tend to be around perhaps older athletes athletes with a history of injury mm-hmm maybe problems that are a little more sticky than 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 normal and and that's the kind of stuff that i enjoy and uh, and that's the kind of stuff that i've done historically at least for the past 15 years predominantly so where's that uh 2012 i started working for a university mm-hmm. uh, so i work as a, a supervisor for candidates who are doing professional doctorates or phds professional doctorate is set up for uh, people who are already working in mostly in sports, but sometimes mm-hmm. in things like the military or dance, but some physical environments, and they want to drive practical innovations, but they want to have 
uh, not just that they make things up, but there is a, a rigorous approach to examining the worth of their innovations and then refining them. So uh, I work with quite a lot of uh, people out there in professional sport, football, rugby, all kinds of everything, really. Uh, so that's quite enjoyable. Uh, 2013, I worked with Lauren Massaro. She won the World Squash title that year. Mm-hmm. Really good athlete. Uh, we got our teeth into a lot of good stuff. Um, 2014, I started working with Ireland Rugby. So I worked for 2014 and 15 Six Nations, which, which Ireland won both of them. And 2015 World Cup and 2016 Six Nations. And... Uh, so now I, I'm contracted to work with the Egyptian national team at this summer's World Cup. So, and again, that's in the role of conditioning slash return to return to play rehab type role. So, so again, I'm just back from a, a, a training camp with them in Switzerland uh, last week, and mm-hmm. really interesting. Obviously, the World Cup's going to be a real challenge, even more so. For us, I think, because Ramadan finishes just a day or two before our first game, so it's really going to be uh, an extra layer of challenge that we wouldn't be used to over here in the West. So, uh, again, really looking forward to seeing how that goes. And that pretty much brings me up to to now. Impressive, John, as always. Okay, uh, last time we talked a lot about history, interior periodization, and about stress. Um, today we are going to talk more about how to deal with the athletes in the real world settings. So, for a start, can you talk about emotional robustness and stress resilience of an athlete, and how do you assess it? Well, okay, well, that's quite a tough one. I, I guess where I come in there is by saying that, again, if we look at traditional training theory, uh, and it doesn't even have to be historical. If we open up an academic journal today, uh, you're likely to see some training studies where psychology isn't mentioned, mm-hmm. emotion isn't mentioned, how the the coach or researchers deal with the athlete isn't mentioned. Uh, and in relation to emotion, I guess my perspective is, and again, I'd I didn't just make this up. This is chasing the research for the past 10 years. But our conventional belief is, you know, that in some way we're robots. Our athletes are robots. You put a certain training load in and a certain adaptation pops out the other end. And that's obviously not the case. Now, we know, okay, yeah, well, people have different genetics, so they'll adapt differently. Yeah, but there's more to it than that. There's, if you are lacking in confidence, if you feel insecure, if emotionally you do not feel uh, attached to the purpose of the training session, mm-hmm. to your coach, to your team's mission, any of those issues that affect uh, your, let's call it the emotional backdrop of the athlete, they will have a direct impact on training consequences. And I think when you dig down and and you know even at a basic level and suggest why that why might that be, well, the reason it is really is that the the chemistry of your brain is in large part dictated by 
what emotional state you are in at the moment. Right. Now, this is specifically, if you want to think about it in an evolutionary context, if you are feeling insecure or at risk, from an evolutionary perspective, that was there because that would that those feelings would drive a change in neurochemistry, which would subsequently drive downstream changes in biochemistry, which obviously influence all kinds of everything really from you know the amount of cortisol you're secreting, adrenaline you're secreting, or the different hormonal profiles throughout your body. Mm-hmm. So things that affect how you perform and how you adapt from training. So, so those type of things we've neglected uh, quite a lot historically. We've tried to separate things into, you know, it's just physical, physical dis- training description, physical equals physical training output. If it's, if it's above the neck, well, pass them on to the psychologist or something like this. At least in the academic world, that's the way we've dealt with it. But Good coaches, I think, and the best coaches have always intuitively known that, or if not known in a way that they would articulate, knew in some deep way that if they want to get the best out of the athlete, then that athlete needs to buy into their philosophy, to their ethos. Right. They need to have good, clear communication. They need to eradicate doubt. They need to... uh, give the athlete a sense of security within the training program and the sense that mm-hmm. I, I don't have to get on with my coach. We don't have to be best friends, but the coach has my best interest in heart and the coach thinks deeply about what I want to do and the coach values my opinion. Uh, and I'm not just a piece of meat basically to this coaching. Mm-hmm. And that those type of things uh, all affect your emotional backdrop, all affect the emotional backdrop around the training processes. Now, we've talked about coach, but it also any service provider, but also your group, your athlete group and the dynamics around that. And also your outside life. If you are in an emotionally distraught state or in a highly chaotic environment or under a lot of uh, stress from external sources, all of that is going to seep away and uh, erode your coping resources. It will play havoc with your neurochemistry, which in turn will dictate your biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess without going on about it too much, if those things are things that we need to factor into training responses. Right. It's not enough to write something on a page or an Excel sheet and think that this will uh, this amount of training in equals this uh, adaptive output out the other end of the equation. There's lots more to it than that. And for people who are coaches or SNCs or physios or medics, I guess the most surprising thing for me over the past few years has been understanding that how we present to athletes mm-hmm. is is a fundamental shaper of how they feel about the training program that we give them. And that actually is, makes a concrete difference. It actually enhances the work of the training they do. So I guess what I'm saying in a quite a roundabout way is that the training performance is only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is how the athlete feels about that mm-hmm. and the, the chemical responses that those feelings drive in the athlete. 
Right. So, for example, if an athlete comes to you and he says, I'm three out of five today, what are your actions? Uh, what do you modify for that day and why? Well, I mean, that's a good question. But what I would say is I don't think there's a simplistic answer to that. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a couple of scenarios. Right. Uh, it is a it is an easy day. It's scheduled as an easy day. It's been a, yesterday was a hard day. Some high intensity stuff, maybe some contacts, depending on the sport and so on. And an athlete comes and said, oh, "You know, I'm not feeling great. Didn't sleep well. Uh, arguing with my partner, whatever it is. Baby kept me awake." Uh, there wouldn't be a stock answer, but what I would do is I'd look at the training and think, okay, well, what's the rest of our training look like? Is this a high-priority session or a low-priority session? Is this athlete constitutionally a tough athlete with high resilience, or is this an athlete that is a little bit um, hypersensitive to fatigue, discomfort? So in other words, there's always more than one goal going on. If it's an athlete that you think, this experienced athlete, they're a tough athlete. I'm not worried about their uh, their ability to work hard. So I'm going to treat this as, okay, if they're saying something to me, this might be important. If it's a non-priority session, what I might say to them is, hey, you know what? Take it easy today. Just dial back your RPE or dial back the volume or cut back your high-speed meters. But let's let's morph this day into a moderate intensity day let's let's bring it down more towards the easy recovery day the other side of the coin if it's a let's say a young athlete um yeah maybe you know coach feels that yeah, you know this person isn't really committing to the training program mm-hmm. T- they tend to get a bit gun shy when when things get hot so then you might say well listen okay i hear what you're saying we're going to go ahead with the session as planned. There will be a hard portion of it. What we'll do to mitigate risk is let's extend your warm-up. Or you know what? We're going to give you some extra warm-up. Or we'll cut the high-intensity session by a few minutes. But you need to get through it. We need to see that you're putting yourself on the line today. Uh, but again, to facilitate that, whatever you feel you need to do, we'll give you the time to prepare fully for that high-intensity section. So it's not like that I would suggest that people should have a stock answer and it's like, oh, three out of five, mm-hmm. go, go home. It, it, it can't be like that because uh, there's always multiple goals. There's, you know, kind of a emotional resilience, psychological toughness, as well as getting some physical training done and, and technical training done. But I think the, the key thing is if you are taking some metrics like that and the athlete comes to you, that sparks a conversation. And my experience has been at least that the the good that you get from installing a monitoring system isn't the numbers that fall out of the monitoring system, but the conversations that it it, it ignites or that it sparks. So, you know, an, an athlete and you might not otherwise talk to the athlete about, well, how do you feel? And is there, is there anything going on in the background if their daily monitoring scores hadn't reflected that there was some type of change or if they didn't feel confident enough in opening up to you and sharing it with you? So sometimes I think that monitoring screens are presented as uh, they're a way of seeing if the athlete is tired so we can back off. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and t- to me, that's, that's not a good use of them. It's a, a way of 
stimulating a conversation to get information from the athlete so you, between you you can get a good handle on where the athlete is on that given day and then you decide okay you're feeling tired but you know what this is our only chance to get a high intensity session in let's do it let's be aware that you're not feeling 100 percent. so you need to uh, maybe push that bit harder but you need to warm up well we need to shut it down at the first sign of risk. We need to make sure you're straight into your recovery protocol at the other end of it. And you're just, I guess, massaging other factors around the training session and minimize risk, optimize ad- adaptation, even when the athlete doesn't feel right. Because sometimes you have to get stuff done regardless of how you feel. Mm. You can't, you know, if you're in, I don't know, the Wimbledon final and you don't... and you're only rating three out of 10. Well, you still have to go and do it. And unless you're able to go to that well on a regular basis when you don't feel right, have the confidence born from past experience that I can do this, but also have the, uh, the, the common sense to think, okay, but if I'm not at 100% now, I need to have some strategies in place to get me up to 100% in an hour's time. What does that mean for my warm-up? Well, this is what I've done in previous similar situations in training. And adding this to my warm-up normally sorts me out. So, boom, here I go. I just dial into that protocol, plug and play, uh, and I know that I'm, I'm going to be uh, ready come game time. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and what if, if if he says, I'm like one out of five, do you just have a talk or you send him home? I know that it's not that simple, but just or – and if it's like – I'm five out of five. Do you increase the workload and uh, at what are you focused then? Okay, so again, if it's a one out of five and it is an athlete that you know is experienced, reliable, mm-hmm. is used to this uh, system of monitoring, uh, a one out of five, I'm thinking for this athlete, that's bad. Okay. How, uh, first of all, I'd be looking at what we did in the past couple of days to get to this state. Mm-hmm. But then I, I would be taking action if, and it's always a it's always a trade off. What's right. the be- what's the benefit? What's the perceived risk? Now, a lot of the time, what we tend to do is we take high risks for small gains. So, for example, if mm-hmm. I, I don't know, let's say you're working with a middle distance athlete and they're The session is 400s and they're working, I, I don't know, let's call it 12-400 repeats on 60-second recovery or something like that. And towards the back end of the set, the athlete is saying, oh, I really don't feel well. And you think, well, let's see, there's two reps left. What is the benefit of doing two reps, two more reps on top of 10 previous reps mm-hmm. versus what is the risk? Well, the risk is, okay, if the wheels are starting to come off, then maybe we're going to get a muscle strain here. Now, what is the consequence of that muscle strain? Well, that could be four or five, six weeks out. Okay, so I have a marginal benefit and I have a high cost. Right. So if, if I'm wrong, high cost. If if nothing goes wrong, then no, very little benefit. And the chances are 80% that nothing will go wrong. Well, I'd say, okay, well, it still doesn't stack up. That 20% risk, that one in five risk, of six weeks out that far outweighs the very marginal benefits. So in a situation like that, you'd be uh, you, you'd be calling time on the session. But, and I guess my point there is that we tend to see it as a, a kind of a linear decision-making process. 
but it's not. Sometimes the risks, the, the chances of risk of, of failure are small, but the consequences are really high. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the odds of nothing happening are in the favor of do an extra rep, do an extra set, but the benefits are really marginal. So, and you know, obviously you can't really put numbers on these, but it's just having a way, a structured way of thinking about it, having a way of communicating with the athlete that, you know, they know exactly what you mean when you use certain words, vice versa, you understand what they mean, you're well tuned in, you both are um, on the same wavelength in terms of how you're, the information that you're looking for as a coach and the information the athlete knows you want and knows how to express it. And that type of background information enhances decision making. Right. So you get decisions right more often than you get them wrong. And ultimately, for me, what coaching is, is it's a whole, it's a long, long series of decisions. Right. And you get as many right as you can. And you definitely don't get any of the big ones wrong. Awesome, John. Um, you talked a lot about importance of buying um, with the athletes. But with all these questions to athletes and conversations and also involving them into decision-making can backfire. I mean, it can be contradictory as one may prefer that if they are serious about training, like you said. But other could say, hey, you're a coach here, not me. Why should I know? So how to deal with that? Oh, well, that's, uh, I mean, and, and that's something that happens in practice all the time. And it's yeah. something that, it's something that I, I, I got wrong uh, plenty of times in the past. I think that, first of all, there's a very interesting phenomenon you may have come across called cognitive overload. And cognitive overload is when you, you just have, you're making a lot of decisions. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, there's research just coming out in the past couple of years. If you... For example, if we give you a maths test before you do a interval session, so we give you some cognitively challenging activity before you do some physical activity, that the preload, the pre-training cognitive load will will detract from subsequent adaptation. It will diminish your subsequent physical adaptation. So, so I guess this is just another dimension of what we talked about a while ago in terms of uh, emotional distress uh, affecting neurochemistry, affecting uh, uh, training outcomes. Same thing with cognitive overload, cognitive resources in terms of the, essentially the, the, the chemicals and the, the, the brain hardware necessary to make hard decisions if you do too much in too short a time then they they fatigue and that fatigue has a consequence to how well you train and how well you subsequently adapt to that training. So again, cognitive overload, if you're thinking about, okay, well, uh, I need to involve the athlete in this decision, so I need to ask the athlete a load of questions, I don't think that would be a good strategy. Mm -hmm. What I would do is, Let's say it's a young athlete. Uh, it's a team-based sport. Uh, in team-based sports, they tend to historically would have less, uh, would know less training theory because it's a group of them, and uh, basically they're often just told what to do and they do it like machines. So they're not very good at giving feedback. 
and you can't expect them to be. But what I would do is I would ask them simple questions. It, and it might be, I might limit myself. I'll give you three simple questions every time we meet for a session. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And the three and the questions could be something uh, as simple as uh, any fatigue after yesterday's session. Yes, no. Uh, if you have rated, where is it? Uh, do you understand what today's session is about? We're going to do X, Y, Z. We're doing X for this physical capacity. This is how how it relates to you. And I'd probably drop in something like, and this is how it will help you in the future. So there's always a link there to the athlete. Okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And here's how it leads to my longer term goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a strand we often miss in terms of getting athletes to fully engage. Uh, And the last thing I do then is just make sure that they're really clear on the objectives of the session and the level of effort they need to put into the session. So it might be as simple as, you know what, this is uh, a Thursday weight session. You have a match on Saturday. Don't take any risks. I don't want RPs going above five out of 10. We're just going to do some maintenance, just going to do some activation, yada, yada, yada. And just make sure they were clear on that. And, And that might be all. Now, a contrasting scenario, uh, older player, really experienced, well-tuned in, let's say just coming back from injury, needs to make uh, a game at the weekend, but is very much on the, the edge of whether or not that's going to be feasible. Then it's uh, a little bit more of a questioning process. Uh, and then it's a, it's a bit more about, okay, we don't want to cognitively overload them, but we do need information. So what what a simple strategy you could do there is separate the conversation with the training session. So I have the conversation uh, just after breakfast and the training session is just before lunch. So there's a couple of hours separating those times. Mm -hmm. Simple strategy. The other thing is, again, you would try and keep it short. You would try and limit the amount of choices you give the athlete so they're not having to think, oh, well, I could do this and I could do this, but I'm not sure about this. So you you don't overload. And again... It depends on the delicacy and the risk involved. I, I think sometimes athletes, you know, they don't want decision making to be low, landed on them. So it's it's for us to design our questions to be optimally insightful, give us the information we need, but boom, it has to be really quick. You know, so you might get a like, I'm going to take 30 seconds with this athlete, check, check, check. Okay, we're good to go. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, there'll be a spanner in the works, something you, you don't expect comes up and I think then it's just okay let's pause for a second let's pull aside have a you know a minute or two conversation and then then make a decision on what to do for the rest of the session ultimately I think it all depends on how delicate the situation is like if you get the decision slightly wrong is there is there going to be high consequences for the athlete. If that's the case, then you need to delve a bit deeper. You need to make them think a bit more. You need to be sure that they're fully confident in what you're suggesting. If, on the other hand, it's you know it's a run-of-the-mill session, they've been through a thousand times, it's not a kind of a takeout session, uh, then you can afford it. Hey, how are you feeling? All good? Yeah, you know what we're doing today? Yeah, you know why? Yeah, great, crack on. Yeah. Awesome. Too much? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But John, uh, how to manage all of this in a team sports uh, when you have so many athletes and you are very time constrained? So, in addition, how to explain the importance of all of this to the main coach without losing a job? <laughs> well, it's, the last question, let me try that first. <laughs> That's a tough one. I think, you know, and I'm, I'm generalizing like crazy here. <laughs> no problem, yeah, just go. There is among sports, but I think what what the, the head coach wants is practicality, that you're not going to introduce something that throws his or her systems off. You're not going to take lots of time. You're not going to be wasting time, wasting energy. So I think it's the problem presented to us is how do we enhance information, mm -hmm. create space for meaningful uh, conversations with the athletes, educate the athletes. So in a year's time, this athlete is better able to give appropriate feedback and is Uh, perhaps has slightly more ownership of their training than they do th this year. So we need to be looking at all these things in parallel. How do we do that? Uh, so, so yeah, so the coach just wants is a practical. Can you get it done in five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, without fatiguing the athletes? Yes, no, benefits, costs, and then they'll make a value judgment on that. So it's, I think it's our role uh, as S&Cs, rehabs, physios, and so on, to make the case clearly, concisely, say this is how it would work, this is how long it would take, this is how, what it would ask of the athletes. And then you're giving the coach all the relevant information, and, and, and these are the benefits. And then you're giving the coach the decision-making um, information they, they need to make a good call. So in terms of the other part of the question uh, in relation to well, how do you do all this because I guess some people might listen and think, well, that sounds like over-the-top, touchy-feely. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's not the way I, I mean it at all. Uh, and I think that if we think of athletes will come to a session and if they're pro professional experienced athletes, their head will be in the game, you know, before they come to that session. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be taking their head away, taking their focus somewhere else. So what I would do is perhaps if it's a group you mentioned team sports I would have for example the key objectives up on the board this is what we're doing this is the effort le effort level we need these are the critical events within the training session here's where we need our highest focus back end of the session maybe it's just maintenance work you can relax a little bit have a laugh whatever you want for these let's call it three exercises we need you zoomed in okay now any questions on what we're doing, why we're doing it, uh, how it benefits you. No? Okay. Give you two minutes to get your head together. Okay. Look over what we're doing. I'll be over here. If you have any problems, ask. We start our warm-up in two minutes. So something like that is, uh, it's not you're going around and you're quizzing everyone in, uh, individually, but we just have to accept that that's not possible in all contexts. So how do I make what I do efficient but still try and capture relevant information mm -hmm. and it's always it's always it, it's always a compromise there's right. always a compromise between time cognitive brain space uh, and not wanting to fatigue athletes but lots and lots of 
talk and chat before the training session and not want to take their concentration away from what's really critical for them over the next hour, hour and a half. Right. Awesome. And uh, just for kind of recap, with all of this being said, we know the problems that we are facing in the field. So what is the best solution that we have right now? I mean, how to deal with the uncertainty? with the uncertainties well how to deal with the uncertainties I guess um, okay so I think that we can't deal with all of them you know it's, it's a really really complex environment right we don't have perfect information we never will have perfect information so it's there's always some guesswork and it's just uh, embracing that fact that right. Working in the field we work in is really hard and you need your wits about you every time you step in the door of the gym or on the training pitch or on the, the indoor track. You need your you need your brain switched on the same way, you know, if you were uh, in a different trade, if you were, I don't know, walking into a, a doctor's surgery as a doctor or if you were you know, a trader on a floor and you were handling big decisions quickly, you're always dealing with imperfect, complex information. Our job is to, I would say, approach the problems we're presented with in a in an appropriate manner. Mm. And what an appropriate manner is kind of what we talked about the last day. It's not, it's not that I have these set of standard answers to every problem I encounter. Right. It's not that I constantly think, oh yeah, I saw this before and this is the solution. Or uh, ex-Soviet in 1952 said blah, 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 blah. So that's what I go with. That is right. the way the truth the light for all, all eternity. It's just... Yeah, in complex environments, it's just thinking through, seeing the problem in front of you as an original problem. Mm -hmm. yeah, and they all are original problems and thinking, okay, well, what is the best advice I can give to solve this problem? Uh, and so it's not a stock answer. It's not an off-the-shelf solution. But it's, yeah, and it, it means that the downside of that is that it costs, it takes a lot of energy when you're right. at work asked the question it takes quite a lot of energy but it but it becomes a habit in the same way that if i and earlier in my career i would have thought well you know this is the answer to this problem all the time so it, it was easy <laughs> because you just learn off the the supposed answers for the supposed problems the more experience i've got the more i've seen that that's not the case the more i think okay just step back don't automatically have a knee-jerk answer to every problem think about it yeah i think um, yeah. I think that we have a problem with optimization. You know, people uh, people always try to optimize everything, and you are dealing with the chaos, everyday chaos, and you need to react to the new uh, new scenario every day. So you can't optimize everything, and people are just you know kind of stubborn with that. That's a, that's actually a really really good point. And I think that we are obsessed with this hypothetical mm -hmm. optimization. And the thing is, there isn't any optimization in training. You might design something that you feel is optimal around one dimension, but it won't be optimal from another dimension. So it depends on how you measure it, 
and what problem you're looking at it, look at it from a different angle, physical, psychological, biomechanical. Right. There is no optimal solution, or if there is, it's going to take you 20 years and you'll win a Nobel Prize for, for <laughs> sorting it out. So I think a lot of what we do, and certainly a lot of decision-making uh, that I would do is what is the best, quickest solution that I can introduce right now with the time I have, with the technical ability the athletes have, and with the energy that we have right now. And it's just coming to, it's, yeah, it's coming to the best compromise. So it's a negotiated compromise rather than rather than an optimized solution. And there's actually, <laughs> there's a, some of your might have heard of a guy called Herbert, Herbert Simons, who was an early complexity theorist in the in the 1960s mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he had this but i think it was a it's a beautiful word <laughs> he and it's a mix of suffice so the word suffice in other words good enough uh and the word satisfy satisfy mm -hmm. right. so it satisfies all uh conditions and he called that um satisficing and basically what it meant is and it's the, the antidote, I think, to uh, the thinking about optimal answers. Satisficing is, no, we find an adequate solution that we can introduce right now, here and now, that's practical, that gets the job done without doing any harm. Uh, and, it, it, yeah, it's a really nice word. And I often, uh, I often think of it when um, people raise things like optimality. Because the truth is our biology isn't even though we have all these theories about uh, optimal movement control and so on, there is no optimal movement control. It's always a negotiated compromise. Uh, if I do this movement, uh, this will be the risk. This will be the discomfort. This will be the energy expenditure. This will be how, how, how much neural resources my brain needs to dedicate to control it. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole sequence of costs that need to be resolved simultaneously. And your brain doesn't spend an hour processing before you take your next stride or, you know, it, it just finds a solution that will do for now and, and initiates that solution. Uh, and I think that a lot of the, the arguments that we have in, in the science, certainly in this field, and a lot of our concerns are about trying to find optimal solutions let's say technically from a, a technical perspective but yeah that is a technique that's only one dimension how the athlete feels about it does it feel comfortable to the athlete is it time efficient does it put the athlete at risk yada 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 all those type of things are other considerations that we need to factor into to any type of decision making process we have mm -hmm. awesome awesome job so there is only one more thing that I want to talk about today. So it's about neuroplasticity and you talked a lot about it. So neuroplasticity is a concept not well understood in the strength conditioning realm, but governs a big part of how athletes move and perform in sport. So please, can you touch on it and please explain the importance of gray matter and how is that related to sport performance? Okay, so again, I mean, you're right, neuroplasticity is, um, re I, I think it, it provides, if, if you understand it, it provides a good foundation for a lot of what we do. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I guess the basic way to explain it is we all understand that tissues are, are plastic in how they respond. So if you load a bone over time, the bone gets better able to adapt to load. It becomes more resilient. Right. Same with muscle. You know, a muscle might grow or it becomes more dense or there's some fiber type transitions, but there's some concrete physical change. And I guess it's easy to see it. You lose weight, you gain muscle, and you can see the difference. But that's just, that's biological plasticity. Neuroplasticity is what happens in the brain and spinal cord and nerves. And it's obviously, it's invisible. But it's pretty much the exact same thing in terms of if I am exercising my muscle, any physical activity I do will slightly change the structure of that muscle. Slightly, on a micro level. It's the exact same with uh, neuronal connections and, and, and so on. Any activity I do slightly changes those neuronal connections. And the exact same is with muscle. What it does is it makes uh, it makes it slightly easier to do it that same way in the future. It makes those uh, neural entities slightly more efficient at performing a movement a specific way or handling a load a specific way or stabilizing or whatever it might be. So everything we do in training is it's directly or not directly focused on neuroplasticity and it is the value of training is that it does affect neuroplastic changes. Mm -hmm. uh, neuroplastic changes are what embed physical habits in terms of how you move or how you respond in a certain situation. It's the linkages, the the collaborations that are established in practice that are ingrained in the micro change of neural architecture. And that's what really dictates uh, the relationships between certain movements and how one movement flows into the other and how well you activate or don't activate a specific musculature. Now, I guess everyone knows that you know, neuroplasticity has been a hot, top, hot topic for, for the past 20 years. Yeah. Everyone, everyone always acknowledged that in kids, it's neuroplasticity is, is highly explosive in the sense that uh, kids learn. Uh, everything is new to kids, uh, to, to, to young kids. And as they mature, they, they learn, they le learn skill, skills rapidly. They learn skills visibly. So everyone knew, okay, well, plasticity is explosive in, in youth but it was generally considered that it wasn't, it, it was pretty much dormant, essentially, once you matured. Past 20 years has been established beyond doubt that that's not the case, that it remains, the potential for neuroplasticity remains right into old age and just up to death. Obviously, the catch is neuroplasticity can be positive or negative. So, for example, if uh, a famous experiment uh, with monkeys, but sew two fingers together and there'll be neuroplastic changes in the motor cortex that change the way the brain handles coordination of those two fingers. It start to coordinate it as one finger rather than two fingers. Cut the stitches open five days later and after a day or two, again, those neural maps have segregated into individual fingers and again, you have good control over over two fingers. Mm. And I think that provides an illustration. So, for example, the, where I think about neuroplasticity is most commonly around injury. 
uh, I injure a hamstring, what happens? Okay, well, first of all, there's pain. And what does that pain do? Well, that pain stops me from moving in specific ways. Normally, training would be shut down. So what does that mean for the uh, neuronal circuits that control that particular patch of hamstring muscle? Well, they're not activated. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, neuroplasticity is, is kind of a very uh, dynamic process. If you are not using it, you are going to lose it pretty quickly. You lose it pretty quickly because uh, your brain isn't like a muscle. You know, you can't just eat some protein and pack on a, you know, you can't make your brain bigger, obviously. It's limited in size. Right. It's really limited in its energy cost because it's so expensive to run. So you get materials uh, being recycled all the time and really quickly. So it's called competitive plasticity. If something lays dormant, it doesn't lay dormant to, for long. It gets incorporated into uh, other movements or other activities. It gets it gets equipped, reshaped to perform other things, and it becomes less specialized for what you want. You have had trained it to be specialized at. So I guess for me, as someone who works a lot in the rehab field, it's just to say that the exact same way as when there's a physical insult at the level of the tissue, there's always a corresponding insult at the level of the neuronal tissue as well. Mm-hmm. And that that doesn't go away easily. It doesn't go away in the same time frame as maybe a, 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 some tissue damage might clear up. It won't show up on, on, on imaging the same way as some uh, muscle healing would show up. But there's always a little legacy left in their post-injury. And I think that uh, one of the things for me that we don't do enough of is I don't think we chase injuries for long enough. In other words, we tend to have these time ranges where we assume that, you know, a grade two muscle tear will be back to normal after X number of weeks. Uh, And that may be broadly true at the tissue level, but... Uh, we also need to think of more coordinative level, level and how we reboot and recalibrate the neuronal system. Now, how we do that, I think, is through a lot of coordinative type challenges uh, that cause you to uh, intently and purposefully really force that neuronal apparatus uh, apparatus to uh, to control movement. Um, so I don't know if that was really clear, but 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 that's kind of basically a, the, the long way around neuroplasticity and some of the implications that that I think it has for for our world. Yeah, nice. So one more thing: can we talk now about coordination uh, for a moment? And uh, what is it actually? I mean, we all have that formal academic definition of it, but it's pretty useless. So can you please expand on this one? Yeah, so coordination is something that you know I've been interested in for a long time. Um, first of all, because I think that's the real legacy of prior injury is coordination mm-hmm. deficits. Uh, in part, for those reasons I've explained, the fact that any injury is also an insult to your central nervous system, and the central nervous system changes after injury or changes around injury, and it's very hard to reboot the ner- central nervous system to go back to the way it was. It might look like our movement is the same way, but normally it's coordinated in a slightly different way, and it tends to then have 
kind of no-go regions where the central nervous system doesn't want to activate in a certain way, in a certain sequence. So your full repertoire of movements is slightly reduced. And what that does is brings down your overall ceiling level of uh, performance ability and increases the likelihood of future injury. Um, so what does coordination mean to me? Well, ultimately, I think coordination is kind of everything in, in sport. Right. It, is, it is ultimately, <laughs> it is what makes you good or bad at sport, yet we don't have a coherent training philosophy around coordination. We've mm-hmm. got different philosophies around strength training or endurance training, but strength is, strength is a coordinated capacity. You know, you try and do any strength movement when you activate every muscle fully and you're not going to move. Right. Same time, if you want to, you know, in, in, in the injury. So it's just like max strength doesn't tell you who will be right. the fastest or the best jumper. Exact same in the endurance world. The biggest heart and lungs don't tell you who the most efficient runner is because that's more of a coordinated function in terms of how effectively can I organize my body to accomplish what I want it to do for the least energy cost, least risk, uh, most effectiveness. So again, coordination to me is another one of those capacities. It's another one where that it's it's a satisfying process. Mm-hmm. What's the solution? What's the best solution for now? The current way I feel, uh, my current capacities. Uh, and I guess the the practical implication is, well, one, do we train coordination? Uh, sometimes in some sports mostly we train it indirectly by doing the sport specific movement right uh which i think works pretty well you know for especially for younger athletes but once you're an older athlete if you've been performing a small set of sport specific movements for a long time Mm -hmm. then i would be getting worried and i think again what we see with older athletes they're that bit more exposed to injury i would think a large part of that exposure is because uh, because they're used to a smaller repertoire of coordinative movements, mm-hmm. they become less adaptable. So something small happens, and they're just a little bit slow in coming up with the movement solution, and as a result, foot goes down the wrong position, and there's a slight injury, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, let me see, was there anything else around coordination there? So maybe touch on our early specialization that we talked about last time of the record. Um so maybe early specialization is not bad at all, but the problem is in the range of movements that SNC coaches are teaching their uh, youth athletes. Well, I think uh, it's it's kind of like you know the periodization element of the conversation we had. Uh, we kind of get. We kind of fall in behind these movements, you know, periodization or early specialization. And then other people fall into you no know, anti-periodization, anti-early specialization. But I think they're kind of nearly false polarizations. Early specialization in its traditional sense, which is you come in at a very young age and you play a lot of a single sport. Yeah, well, we know from the research that that exacerbates injury risk, you know, right. into... In, into adulthood now the obvious solution is well that doesn't mean early specialization is bad it just means that previous conceptions of early specialization was bad if we introduce more movement challenges mm-hmm. more 
innovative challenges, more widespread uh, training, more diversity of training, more diversity of uh, athletic problem-solving exposures. You know, get you know, there's no reason to say why an early specialiser in tennis can't play right. football or badminton or go swimming, and it would probably do them very, you know, a, a lot of good when they're young. So again, it's a false dichotomy. It's I, I don't think it's a it's a, a necessary evil. Early specialisation, I don't think, is evil. It is just originally or traditionally how we conceptualised it was too limited. If you are an early specialiser who has a lot of a specific sports-specific movement, then whoever is in charge of that programme needs to make really, really sure that you are getting a very wide diversity of training experiences, but also cognitive uh, experiences and, and challenges. Uh, you know, some emotional support, because again, with early specialization, it's not just physical uh, and injury problems that early specializers tend to have, but also uh, lack of motivation over time because pressure and so on. So there needs to be, if there's ways brought in to alleviate all those traditional risks, then I don't, and, and to provide the young athlete with a wide diversity of training experiences, then I, I, I can't see any reason why early specialization uh, remains uh, a, a bad thing. At the same time, if somebody doesn't want to specialize and play lots of different sports, have lots of different experiences, uh, different pressures, individual athlete, team athlete, all those type of things, that's you know also a good way to go. And you can see how they overlap substantially depending on how broadly you define early specialization and non-specialization. Brilliant. Okay, John, so I'm conscious about time here, so let's wrap this up. Um, where can people find you, John? Online or social media yeah. or whatever? Uh, I guess my only social media outlet would be I'm on Twitter at, 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 at SimplySportsI. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, uh, if, if people want to get in touch with me, uh, my email is jkiley at uclan.ac.uk and yeah, I'd be happy to hear any feedback or, or comments, good or bad, from your listeners. <laughs> okay, John, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was uh, really, really my pleasure to talk with you about all of these things. Uh, not at all. Uh, always happy to talk training, Ivan. Thanks yeah. very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. See you, mate. All right, catch you later. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM and we'll try to answer it when we can.